When it comes to the Christian faith, the truth that all humans are sinful is central to our understanding of our need for the gospel. And because of this, it's important for us to grasp the story of the fall in Genesis 3 and how that story impacts the rest of the Bible and our own lives. And yet this pivotal moment in the story of the world is complex and often leaves us with a lot of questions. In my interview today, Mitch Chase walks us through the story of the fall from Genesis 3 showing how it connects to the whole of scripture and highlighting key moments that we need to understand. Mitch Chase is an associate professor of biblical studies at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also the preaching pastor of Cosmosdale Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and the author of several books, including Short of Glory, a biblical and theological exploration of the fall from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Mitch, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Matt, I'm glad to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so set the stage for us. Um, going back to the Garden of Eden, why did God create a garden? The location of the garden and the beauty of Eden uh, was a particular location on the globe that was meant to have a trajectory of global dominion and glory to honor God and to bless his image bearers. Mm. And the goal of the garden was never to remain in that particular spatial location. Do we have a sense for where that actually was? Well, so you have rivers that are named. You have the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Um, You have the Gihon and the Pishon rivers. These are named in Genesis 2. And uh, two of those rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, are still known today. Uh, So it's in that ancient Near Eastern area of Mesopotamia. And uh, in that region, uh, the Lord had created this sanctuary, this blessed paradise uh, for his image bearers. And um, this creation of of a garden, an, uh, an Edenic paradise, was so that his image bearers and thereby his glory and name would be exalted around the earth. Um, that means outside of Eden, there were realities that would be different from what's inside. Right. Eden. That's something that the text doesn't speak about, at least in those opening chapters. But what, what might be a reasonable assumption about uh, what was outside of Eden at that time? I, so I do think we have very little that we could imply mm. um, with that kind of question because we are speculating a bit. And yet if there is a, an exile from Eden at the end of Genesis 3, then, um, then obviously outside of Eden, there must be some kind of removal or alienation from the life and potentiality that Eden did hold out, uh, especially with a couple of those very important trees yeah. uh, that were uh, put in the garden. And, uh, and that means something about Eden would represent the favor and blessing and life of God with his people that outside would not be so easily acquired, mm. accessed. And um, it seems that by exiling Adam and Eve from Eden, it would ensure their physical death even. Um, so those, those realities outside Eden um, were, were to uh, be subdued and exercise, and the image bearers exercise dominion over them. And of course, Adam and Eve are exiled having been subdued by the evil one mm. and having had their own sin exposed and then the consequence of, of exile. Uh, so the, uh, the first Adam, failed. Setting up the question, I think, well, if the garden had this goal and trajectory and the first Adam failed, how will this project of Eden and how will this Adam figure ever accomplish Mm. what the Lord had set out to do? Yeah. And I want to get back to uh, that, the, the, 
the key crisis of the story, right? This, this temptation in the garden and then Adam and Eve's ultimate failure to obey God uh, in just a minute. But uh, before we get there, the, the text says early on, right after Adam and Eve are created, that God put Adam in the garden to, quote, work and keep it. That's right. Uh, what, what does that mean? I think sometimes we have in our mind just a picture of, okay, he's just a gardener, I guess. He's got a hoe and he's planting trees. And that was my, my vision of this uh, growing up, thinking about Adam, rows of dirt, things yeah. growing out, plants <laughs> at harvest time. Kind of an idyllic existence. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think the Pentateuch as a whole helps us with this very early passage in the Bible. I'm very persuaded that we should allow later and clearer texts to illuminate and explain what was already in seed form in earlier texts. If we notice those verbs, to, to work and uh, to keep, these verbs are used later in the Pentateuch for the priests. Hmm. These are priestly verbs in the pairing of those verbs. They occur independently throughout the Old Testament. So they're, pr- they're pretty generic terms. That's right. And, and when they come together, though, a pair of verbs and occurring in priestly context in the Pentateuch, it makes us realize Adam working and keeping, this was a role in Eden that was more like care for and priestly work a sanctuary, mm. a proto-temple. Yeah. Um, scholars over the years have written very profoundly about how the tabernacle and later the temple under Solomon reflect earlier Edenic realities. I think that's absolutely right. And I think one of the clues there is what we find in Genesis 2, where God puts Adam there as a priest in a proto-temple, a sanctuary where God's name would be treasured and his image bearers would uh, exercise faithfulness and then expand the borders of Eden mm. for the glory of God. So Adam... In that sense, then, he was, uh, as a priest, representing God to creation, kind of caring for creation on God's behalf? I think so, but the uh, Genesis 128 commission to exercise and subdue uh, as well means that this priestly task is going to be something that the image bearers are going to be wrapped up in, that they would be extending the glories and wonders of God and his uh, majesty and in their obedience to him and their Mm -hmm. worship of him, uh, that as they lived and were fruitful and multiplied, uh, more than just Adam would be involved in this project, which means uh, Adam, if you will, is a kind of head, a federal head or representative uh, who has gone before us and whose decisions would have tremendous impact Mm. no matter which way those yeah. decisions went. Yeah, so let's, let's start getting closer to those decisions yeah. that we see in the early chapters there. So let's talk about those two trees. We all know that there are these two trees in the garden. Let's start with the tree of life. What do we know about the tree of life? The importance of this tree is highlighted in Genesis 2 because it's told, we're told that it was placed in the middle of the garden mm. along with this other tree. But the tree of life is automatically given some significance because there's a descriptor. It's a tree of life. Well, what kind of life is this? And uh, I think the clue in Genesis 3 is that when Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, that they may no longer have access to this tree, lest they eat it and live forever. Reading Genesis 3 back into Genesis 2 helps us see with clearer eyes, this is a tree of potential life that they would have through their access to this tree, their obedience to the Lord, the the grace of God at work in creation, and they're alienated from at Mm -hmm. exile. So this tree of life really symbolizes the kind of life they were made for. We could call this an embodied life, an embodied glory even, Mm -hmm. an immortal existence. 
I mean, Genesis 3 ends with saying that they're exiled from Eden, lest they take of that tree and live forever. Adam, therefore, is created as a mortal creature. We should not imagine that he was created immortal, and then, you know, the fall changed things. I think that's the way we typically assume it worked. Exactly. And when you notice the unfolding of the narratives, it seems that Adam was created with a mortal life, then denied access to a tree that would cause him Mm. to live forever in its fruit, so that this tree holds out the life we were made for in, uh, in what it symbolizes. Mm. And uh, you know, there's nothing magical about the fruit. It, it's what the Lord had put it there to represent, a life uh, that is extended from the hand of God, the life of God, the blessing of God, immortality, embodied glory. Adam was made of the, for these things, mm. but in Adam we have fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah, so should we assume that um, before the fall, Adam and Eve were partaking of the tree of life. That was sustaining them in some meaningful way. This is less clear. G.K. Beale, in his book, A New Testament Biblical Theology, he does offer the, the plausible suggestion that Adam and Eve would have had some kind of access and perhaps even eating from the tree, but not in its most consummative or escalated sense. Mm. So that if they are now denied from this tree, or denied this tree, they are not going to achieve what they would have. It's also possible that they have not eaten of this fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the text only, God only forbids them from eating from that one tree, exactly. the one we haven't talked about yet. So, so in, as far as we can see in the text, there's no reason they couldn't have been partaking of it. In Genesis uh, 2, he gives them the trees of the garden mm. to partake, and he did not deny them the tree of life. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think there's any theological or textual objection to them having eaten. It just might not be what readers would normally imagine them doing, and yeah. that's okay. I think that there's, there's a, a degree of speculation there. Yeah. So then let's, let's turn now to this other tree, the tree of the knowledge yeah. of good and evil. First question— why do we call it that? It's a, maybe yes. a more natural understanding of what this would be used, the tree of evil, or, uh, but this is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which just it complicates it a little bit in our minds. That's right. But your question is the absolute right question. Why is it called this? This descriptor also should be seen in light of later Old Testament passages. To know good and evil is to have wisdom. Uh, wisdom is what the Proverbs hold out to discern the right path from the wrong, to pursue the way of life and avoid the way of death. And uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil is a longer phrase that I think simply represents wisdom. Mm. It represents wisdom that, is, that does not mean God created a good tree and a bad tree. But for the longest time growing up, I think that's the way my own mind thought about it, that God put in this garden a good tree and a bad right. tree. I think that's still the way, again, most of us come to this passage is it's, this is the bad tree that represents evil. And I would want readers to consider that these trees are part of what God had said throughout creation. He has declared it good and very good. He is pleased with all that he has made, including these trees. They represent God's authority and glory and life. The danger in taking from this tree apart from God's direction, in fact, in violation of his prohibition, Mm. the danger in taking from it, it was a seizing of something before the time in one's own manner and in defiance of God's prohibition. It was a rejection of God's ways and wisdom and a seeking to establish it Mm. in Adam's own case. So it wasn't so much that the tree itself was inherently evil or represented sin or rebellion itself. It was the fact that they took it when God had not given it to them yet. I think that's correct. 
they, they should trust the Lord, and it was a lack of trust that led to that eating. God had given warnings about taking from it. And if the Lord uh, had given them warnings uh, about taking uh, from this tree and eating, then they should trust the Lord with that prohibition. All of his words are good to establish and uphold and direct his image bearers to life. And of course, he even is clear about the penalty. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so to seize something for oneself apart from God's wisdom and ways is to defy God's wisdom and to try to establish an independent moral authority, Mm -hmm. an autonomy which violates our very image-bearing status. If God is God and we are his image-bearers, then we should reflect his wisdom in ways and character, mm. trust all of his commandments, and not try to seize moral autonomy as if we can be God in our own authority. Yeah, I want to try to understand a little bit more of the, the moral autonomy dynamic and even the fact that you've called this, this is the tree of wisdom, perhaps is another way to say it. Yeah. So in taking from the tree that and eating that fruit, you would say that we're meant to understand that as Adam and Eve trying to exert their own autonomous decision-making discernment on what is good and what is evil. That's right. Instead of just listening and obeying to what God has said. I think that's right. And in some Reformed theology, what you notice is that they will talk about Adam and Eve as having a kind of maturation period or a probation period where they are learning to trust. They are being trained in righteousness. And we can imagine a parent-child illustration where we can see that there will come a time when this child will be ready to take on something, but not now. This is not the time. And as the parent, you know that certain commands to take and certain prohibitions not to are done from a vantage point of moral authority and wisdom. Mm. And um, and if we were to take that human illustration and try to see this in light of the garden, um, I think the, the garden rebellion is involving people who are to be trained for righteousness and live out what it means to be a faithful image bearer. And there's a rejection of God's ways, wisdom, and timing, a seizing in a morally independent grasp of Mm. fruit. So the fruit itself, it's not as if it was some magical fruit. It's not as if it was like a bad and spoiled tree. It was the act of going against the command of God. That is disobedience. Mm. All right, let's talk about that snake. This is perhaps the (laughs) most, uh, I don't know, vivid and uh, also perplexing, uh, genuinely perplexing facet of this story, that there is this talking snake in the garden that makes a beeline, it seems, for Eve and tries to deceive her into eating this forbidden fruit. And then similarly with Adam, why a talking snake? Uh, This is one of those elements of the story where I understand Bible readers looking at this and thinking, this is so strange. What do I do with this? And um, again, I would want us to consider later texts. So according to Revelation 20 and Revelation 12, the ancient serpent and dragon is the devil. I think this is interpreting Genesis 3. Mm. So we should understand... That's like a comment on Genesis 3. Exactly. It is to, I think, give us greater clarity about what the reader could reasonably imply from Genesis forward anyway, that there is an arch enemy of the people of God, someone who not only wants to defy the ways and wisdom of God, but who wants to lead out in rebellion to deceive and tempt image bearers. If, uh, if this has been his goal since the beginning, then what we see in Genesis 3 is his murderous designs to lead astray God's people. Now, the image bearers have been given authority over creation to subdue the created things. There may be an irony we should detect in Genesis 3. This is not Satan coming in some sort of angelic form. That was a question I had. Why... Yeah. In this a whole account where it talks about all these animals being created, yep. one of the animals is actually the one coming to 
to deceive. That's right. Uh, so yeah, wh- yeah, what is behind that? It seems that in the strategy of the evil one, this would be an act of subversion. If Adam and Eve were to exercise dominion, here is an element of creation, a creeping thing that is going to subdue them. Mm. It is to invert and overthrow the good design of God in creation. Uh, I don't think this is a randomly chosen thing. We even learn from Genesis uh, 1 that they were to have dominion over all the creeping things. And then we find in Genesis 3 this very strange encounter. And part of the strangeness may have been the fact that this is a communicative moment. And here you have Eve exchanging words with what must have seemed like a, a super normal experience. Mm. And uh, that may have been part of the compelling experience in itself that how this was so abnormal. Maybe if, uh, if this is what a creature is doing, that this is something she should le- heed and listen to. Because there's no, no reason in the text to assume that other animals were speaking to them. I don't think we have enough information to assume that. And I wouldn't imply that from the text because um, the manifestation of the evil one's designs there through a creature. Um, we see possession and useful, uh, use of animals and humans, even in the New Testament Gospels. Mm. Uh, you see the demons going into a herd of pigs in Mark's Gospel and running into the sea. Demons taking possession of human beings and overcoming their faculties. I would want us to have a category that there is more than meets the eye to what we can see going on in the world visible. There are principalities and powers seeking to subvert the designs of the Lord to lead astray his image bearers, and that this is not a new strategy. It's an old strategy. Mm. Even the taking the form of a serpent to lead Eve astray is a subverting of God's good design and Eve being subdued by the creation. And even Eve being created to be a helpmate for Adam and Adam being the head of the human race, we even see perhaps a significance that the serpent goes to Eve first and not to Adam. So that when Eve acts, she then leads astray her husband. She's not being Um, a helper to him in that moment. Not at all. And so you have a violation of God's design and goodness, uh, the evil one's strategies seem to be on full display and power, Mm. and it's a a, a grievous episode. Perhaps like the next logical question, and this is a question that I know comes up and has a certain logic to it because it's the question that our kids will often ask us when we get to this part of the story, and that's why would God allow Satan to be there? Why would he, he's made this beautiful, perfect garden, he's set up this this clear command for his people to obey. And it seems like they're doing a pretty good job with yeah. it. And then all of a sudden he allows this deceiving serpent, Satan, yeah. to, to pollute this beautiful place that he's made. Why would he do that? When we talk about the fall, we have to talk about it in, in light of the full panorama of scripture of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, four terms that are often given to describe the big story of the Bible. So when, when my own children ask questions about these events in Genesis, we have to remind ourselves that we have the fullness of God's word to see that he's always been sovereign and that his plan to bring a savior into the world was not a plan B, It was a plan A, so that the created act of God and even the creation of this one who would rebel against God and be the Satan of scripture, and even his image bearers who would go astray, these are not things surprising the Lord in Genesis 3. These, when he asks questions in Genesis 3, these are not meant to give information to God. Like, where are you? Yeah, Yeah. exactly, where are you? He is all-knowing and ever-present and all sovereign. Mm. And that means that the 
fall is part of God's plan to glorify his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam, who would come to bring victory. And in that redemptive story, God's glorified in a way through the redemption of those events that, uh, that in his wisdom, he deemed more necessary, if mm. you will. Uh, even the ways that we talk about that are tricky because we're trying to explain from our vantage point what God must have decreed from the foundation of the world. But seeing in the fullness of scripture, we have an all sovereign God who is not surprised by the fall, but has made a plan of redemption that has included it. Mm. Why does the Bible connect their eating of the fruit with Adam and Eve realizing that they were naked? This nakedness imagery appears not just in Genesis 3, so I'm going to, well, Genesis 2 and 3, I'm going to do what I did earlier and mention that in later biblical texts, we see that nakedness can be connected to shame and dishonor. And um, there seems to be a play on this image in uh, this picture in Genesis 2 and 3. It tells us at the end of Genesis 2 that Adam and his wife were naked. They were not ashamed. That sets up intentionally the shameful act of rebellion in Genesis 3. That means there is a vulnerability, uh, an insecurity, a shame that comes into this world through their brokenness and fractured soul. And, um, and I think that that imagery of, of nakedness and wanting to cover themselves is resonating at a deeper level throughout the rest of scripture. We feel a sense of guilt and shame. We want to hide. And so the language of nakedness and clothing, I think, plays right into that by the design of the author. Mm. Let's turn to then uh, Genesis 3.16. So God is uh, now cursing all the parties involved in this deception and in this sin. What's the significance of the way that the blame is shifted from Adam to Eve to the serpent, and then the curses seem to originate in the opposite direction from the serpent to Eve to Adam? What's going on there? That's so true. And I think that reversal you're acknowledging is so that Adam would be the last one addressed as the head and representative of the human race, Mm -hmm. who in his act as our federal head has done what was disobedient to bring death and exile. Now, uh, starting with the serpent also makes sense because of the serpent's act of deception. And so by starting with the serpent, and ending with Adam, uh, I think you have, you're addressing the deceiving party and ultimately highlighting with an emphatic position the head of the human race Mm. with his very gross rebellion uh, and outrageous action by taking the fruit, not guarding his wife, not protecting her, not leading faithfully, not being a faithful priest, but failing as a priest in the Mm. sanctuary of Yahweh. What do you make of Genesis 3.16? And this is the particular judgment that God cast upon Eve. Yes. Um, it's verse that's been somewhat controversial over the years. It's, it's true. hard to understand what it means. Uh, there's different different opinions on that. So how do you take 316? Yeah, 316 is definitely a more controversially interpreted passage. We see that there are elements about their uh, design and function as image bearers, male and female, that are being addressed in these pronouncements. And I think what we should notice in Genesis 316 is that the various relationships that Eve will have are affected. We have her childbearing that is addressed, her relationship with her husband that is addressed, that sin has a toxic way of filtering into our relationships. And uh, and I think that's what Genesis 3.16 is trying to head off there, mm. is trying to recognize that when we experience strife in marriages, in childbearing, in parenting, this is these are large signals of living in a broken world. 
And um, we also notice in Genesis 4 a, a similar paralleling of ideas about desiring something and being subdued. Mm. And this could uh, help us see in Genesis 3.16 that unfavorable realities are being described. These are not good realities of mm. having to have pain and, and uh, a desire contrary to husband and having uh, his rule over you. These are actually um, things to notice in a broken world that are true outside of Eden. We notice all the kinds of suffering and relational conflict in the world around us. It's proximate to us. It is also remote from us. And we are reminded that things are not the way they ought to be. And we can see these as signs of a broken world. So even amid some of the maybe controversial minutia of the verse, I think that even interpreters can recognize a consensus on those realities mm. that we can establish from Genesis 3. Yeah, and that's where it becomes so important to understand. It kind of presupposes the curse in 3.16, some of the relational dynamics that we see established earlier with, with Eve's creation and, that's right. and what she's designed to be for Adam. That's right. And Adam's uh, own uh, responsibilities and his uh, work and toil on the earth, all of that being affected, not because work is sinful, but because we now live as image bearers in a world affected by the fall. Mm. And Adam himself experiences this. So theologians have sometimes made a point of emphasizing the fact that the text says that God made Adam and Eve, quote, garments of skins and clothed <laughs> them in uh, chapter 3, verse 21. Yes. Um, what are they getting at when, when people say that's significant? Why would they say that's significant? And what do you think about that? Well, it's interesting that there's a making of garments after Adam and Eve have already tried to sew something. We're told in Genesis 3 that they sewed fig leaves together. And you can notice this in Genesis 3. Um, and you see this when, he is, uh, when they have initially rebelled against God and they're naked, they're ashamed. Um, we see this in Genesis 3, verse 7. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We are noticing at the end of the chapter, God providing garments of skin for them, which, uh, which seems to imply they cannot cover themselves as they need to. Mm. That, I think, has both a physical but also spiritual significance because they cannot deal with the degree of their shame and vulnerability in a fallen world. Only God can come to them with the grace to cover them and the mercy that they need. These garments of skin are interesting too because uh, while Adam and Eve sewed uh, fig leaves, skins come from animals. Mm. And if Adam and Eve are clothed with uh, garments of skins, uh, uh, scholars have uh, sometimes implied, okay, is this uh, the first animal death? Is this a sacrificial mm. signal like, that did, we are to pick God up on? Did God kill these animals for it, them? Exactly. And there's this provision, at least of these garments of skins, to then foreshadow the fact that what God will relate to to with the Israelites is the sacrificial system where there will be sacrifices, animals that are offered, even on the very tabernacle itself, garments of skin or layers of skins over the very tabernacle's holy place and most holy place. Mm. In other words, the people of God coming to the tabernacle with the land of Israel and with the tabernacle's resonance of Eden with the echoes of, of priestly service and uh, drawing near to this sacred sanctuary, perhaps we have those early signals already foreshadowed with Adam and Eve. Mm. God is providing an offering, a sacrifice. And then in Genesis 4, Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel, are bringing offerings to God. So who is the one who is training his image bearers to approach him? God is showing them how to come to God. They cannot do this on their own. They are inadequate in all their means to clothe themselves. 
God will reconcile them to himself by grace. And, uh, and I think these are the seeds of what's flowering much later. We, we, uh, we would want to notice that what I'm trying to do is read Genesis 3's garments of skins in light of some later realities in the yeah. life of Israel. That if Moses is providing the Torah for his people, the people of Israel are engaging in this life of corporate community and sacrifice. And what are part of those stories they're noticing? Well, they have the book of Genesis and they see their ancestors and they see God in this proto-temple with his image bearers clothing them with skins. I think these kinds of things would resonate with the later Israelites, those who had ears to hear and eyes to see. Mm. They would know Notice that this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of Adam and Eve. He is the God who comes to people and brings them to himself through sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing how many times in this conversation we've had thus far, you've referenced other passages in the Old Testament, even going so far into the New Testament, the very last book of the Bible, yeah. and, and let those other passages and books help to inform our reading of Genesis. And that can be so different than the way we approach Genesis sometimes. We can the very first book of the Bible, so we start our new Bible reading plan, and we just start with Genesis 1-1, and sometimes we, we don't even have the knowledge that the original hearers would have had about God and about how he's worked with his people and, and what these things mean. So just speak to that momentarily here, the value and the importance of, of reading the book of Genesis in particular through the lens of the rest of the Bible. The New Testament authors expect us to know the Old Testament in order to understand their own writings. The Gospels are drenched in Old Testament stories. We could also rewind, though, and recognize the Old Testament uses the Old Testament. Mm. There is a reliance upon earlier revelation, and it speaks to the Christian approach and posture to the Bible. What sort of book is this? Well, it is written by over 40 different human authors, but there's a divine author that is telling one big story. And in the fourfold paradigm I mentioned earlier of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, we are to see the effects and event of the fall in light of what God's story is trying to tell us. And it's a story of redemption. It's a story to foreshadow and then announce as arrived the Savior who is Christ Jesus our Lord. And that means I, I can understand Genesis 3 best when I keep reading, mm. when I keep seeing where these events are going. Uh, you know, the subtitle of my book, Short of Glory, is a biblical and theological exploration of the fall. So what I'm interested in doing is noticing these later echoes, mm. trying to see how later texts are expecting us to remember what's happened. If you think about going to a movie and having to run out to get popcorn or to run to the restroom and you come back, if you've missed a really important scene, the rest of the movie, you're just scratching your head thinking, okay. I was just gone for a minute. What <laughs> happened? In Genesis 3, it's really the kind of story that when we look at Genesis 1 and 2, and then we dive into Genesis 4, the reader can think to themselves, what just happened that will uh, be explained uh, in this uh, mysterious chapter? In Genesis 3, it's that pivotal event. And, uh, and therefore, the later scripture helps us see a canonical uh, value to reading the whole counsel of God. And that's because the scripture is from a divine author. Mm. God expects us to see his word in this way. And I, and I also think it helps later readers understand the world they're in. Everybody is born outside of Eden. Why is that the case? Why were the biblical authors, as well as every image bearer who currently reads the sacred text, why is the world the way it is? 
the earlier passage of Genesis 3 has incredible explanatory power for why things are the way they are. Mm. And it sets up the good news of the gospel. Uh, So if we notice the problem of sin and brokenness, we are set up for the glorious announcement of good news that God has provided a savior. Mm. So we need Genesis 3 in light of the rest of scripture for all those reasons. Yeah, yeah. So in Genesis 3.22, this is after the curses are pronounced, God then decides how he's going to respond ultimately to their disobedience, namely by kicking them out of the garden. We've already kind of hit on this a little bit. And the text says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Who is he talking to in this passage? He seems to be talking to someone else. He's, he's referring to us, a group of people, seemingly. So who is the us in this passage? Is it right for us to jump right to, oh, this is the Trinity in Genesis? I think it's okay. <laughs> so I, in, my, in my judgment, Genesis 126 is a Trinitarian reference, but I say that because I'm wanting to read it in light of all of Scripture, where the Spirit of God hovers over the waters, and by the Word, nothing was made that has been made without the Word, and the Word was with God and was God in the beginning. If I read John 1 and other creation texts uh, in light of Genesis, uh, or Genesis 1 in light of those later texts like John 1, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, I think it's fine to see a Trinitarian reference. Hmm. That's a controversial statement. There are what, also what would be the views. other opinion? Why, yes. what, what, somebody who disagrees with you, what would they say? Somebody might say, well, I think that might be um, God has made angels before this, and uh, you even see a rebellion uh, that Satan has apparently led that's implied uh, by his own um, malicious approach to the image bearers. So they might say maybe he's speaking about the, the court of angels. Mm. Um, and, and I'm not saying that there can't be um, other, other valid views. I do think it's not a problem to see a Trinitarian reference when we read the scripture canonically. Mm. And uh, I think Genesis 126 as well as Genesis 3.22 probably means that. So God is recognizing that something has happened to these image bearers and they have gained a kind of internal experience that wasn't there previously, a pursuit of moral autonomy and they are broken Mm. and uh, they should leave Eden to confirm the punishment to be administered. So how would you respond to the the Christian listening right now who, who would say, you just described in beautiful terms this story that we have presented to us in these first chapters of Genesis. And you've even drawn out some of the literary qualities, the poetic qualities, the symbolic qualities of this story. And that that's really what's important. It's This is uh, symbolic of uh, humanity's uh, rejection of God's authority over our lives and our fall into sin, but it's not actually meant to be taken as a literal story. We don't. There wasn't actually a literal talking snake in this garden. There wasn't, weren't <laughs> actually two trees. They represent things, but that's it. I think as readers, we can be so influenced by a modernistic way of looking at things where we see stories in the Bible and think, surely that wouldn't happen that way. The danger on that slope is that you would end up doing the same thing to the story of Jonah and the fish, or that you would do the same thing to the walls of Jericho that were marched around and people shouted and they fell, or the idea of the Red Sea parting in Exodus 14. The Bible is full of incredible things. Uh, But as one pastor put it, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, 
there's nothing after that too difficult to believe mm. if God creates the heavens and the earth. So the question is, does the Bible use figurative and symbolic imagery in, uh, in the Old Testament? Well, there are places where that kind of imagery is used and is not meant to be taken literally, and we have to consider the genre. But if later scripture is treating an earlier part of the scriptures as historical, uh, then we should be much more hesitant to say, oh, that's just symbolic, and that mm. didn't really happen that way. And um, we see the, the idea of a historical Adam taught in Romans chapter 5, where he is named as the head of the human race who disobeyed and through him brought uh, sin and death into the world. We see Christ Jesus being uh, depicted as the last Adam and the greater deliverer and head for the human race to bring new creation. And um, that, that type anti-type relationship is based on a real historical figure. And um, I also think it runs us into problems when we look at genealogies biblically. Mm. If you go to Genesis 5, the Genesis 5 genealogy takes you up to the story of Noah. But before Noah, you have his father Lamech. And before Lamech, you have a host of other people. Well, if those stories or those figures were just symbolic and didn't really happen, Lamech is holding forth a hope that a son will be born to deliver them from their toil, which is alluding to Genesis 3. Mm. Where does Lamech get this hope? And, um, and I think the better way to read these texts is that these later characters are descending from and maintaining the hope held out from a real rebellion against God reported in Genesis 3, a real Adam and a real Eve, a real subversion of God's good design, a real exile from Eden. When later scripture, like in Ezekiel 28, or even New Testament depictions of tabernacle and temple imagery in the Gospels and Hebrews, they are relying on these earlier dwelling places that themselves echo a, an Edenic reality. Mm. I, I think we should understand them to all be rooted in an earlier historical truth Genesis 3 is teaching us. Now, I'm not saying there aren't difficult questions to then follow up on, or that there might be some challenges and head-scratching verses for the reader. I'm just saying the Bible is not a postmodern book in the way these stories are told. Mm. This is not a closed universe. There is a God who has made all things for his glory, and he does incredible things the Bible testifies about. And we should have a posture toward the word of God that we will believe those stories all interconnected together. Because once we start pulling at different events and characters and threads, we need to realize other things are going to give way. Mm. And once we start pulling on, well, maybe there wasn't a historical Adam. Well, was there a Seth? And what about the one after Seth? Where in the genealogies do the historical figures appear? Yeah. And all the ones before that were mythical. Now, we, we should look at this as a tapestry of beautiful revelation of progressive unfolding truth for the people of God. And we don't want to meddle with that because in meddling and trying to be smarter than the biblical stories themselves, we can end up theologizing ourselves into disaster. Mm. Well, Mitch, thank you so much for taking the time to, to walk us through this, this classic story that we all know so well, but it, it holds so many surprises as we take a closer look. I'm glad to have done it, Matt. Thanks for letting me reflect on it with you. That was Mitch Chase on The Story of the Fall. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Short of Glory, a biblical and theological exploration of the fall. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off or get the ebook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus.
For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.